Hello and welcome to the Critical Fail podcast. With me this week is Coop. Hello. And we also, obviously, we have Terry. Hello, it is I. And this week we will be talking about one of my favorite topics to, to cover whilst playing a DM, and that is just NPCs and how we add them into our worlds, how we use them, how we drive the story with them. And I'm going to put the question out to Coop. What is one of your first thoughts when it comes to making an NPC, Coop? Uh, oh, I didn't know you were talking to me first. Uh, specifically when making them? Yeah, just like how, when you get the idea, how do you make them something? Uh, I start with a purpose. Everything I, that's, listeners, you're going to find that's a through line with everything I do. The things serve a purpose, and if they don't serve a purpose, I throw them out. Um, or just leave them in. I don't, when work has been done, work has been done. But point being, um, I start with the purpose. What is this NPC for? What is their role in the story? Are they a service provider? Are they an antagonist? Are they an ally? That sort of thing. And then, you know, you, you, you build them. I often use, unless, like, their abilities or race or class is important, I use randomized tables a lot. Um... Google search names, they're... NPCs, for me, are almost exclusively until players gain investment with them, utilitarian things, you know? Yeah, they they are they are a purpose. They're not this character with 15,000 word backstories. They have a... If they have a part in the plot, they have a part in the plot. If they are never met, they're just still just numbers, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um... I will often have, like, a two- or three-sentence write-up of a personality and, like, what that person is, but that can often be created through the random generation process. Use a whole bunch of things, depending on how in detail I want the NPC to be at at first. Uh, The tables in Xanathar's Guide are actually really helpful, as well as just a million random generators you can look up online. But um, typically they start out as, like, a five-sentence description, and, well, like, name, career, purpose, two-sentence personality, likes, dislikes, that sort of thing. And unless the players get invested in them, they don't matter. Though, then again, I've had... I, the common story of the party adopts a goblin, you know? Um, so oftentimes, NPCs will, I will get NPCs like that that just started out like a silly voice. Like, um, I ran a level 0 to level 20 game once, and very early on, the party got ambushed by goblins. And one of them had the good sense to surrender, and they started interrogating. So I started doing this shitty, annoying voice! And then those motherfuckers asked what this guy's name was, and I had to think fast! And he was a goblin, and he lived in a fucking cave, so his name was Grub. And they kept him! I don't know why. At first he was a meat shield that they convinced to help in exchange for not murdering him. But then he was just around. And I'd fuck around with my players at times by just having him show up in a scene uninvited. Because I thought it was funny. And I will spare both my throat and your ears the rest (laughs) of Grub. I've met Grub in another campaign, so yeah. Yeah. Sometimes a silly voice and player attachment is enough. Sometimes... They're just a utilitarian duel. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, Terry, what about you? What is um, your thing of NPCs? 
I'd say in a similar capacity of Coop, like, they need to serve a purpose. Uh, sometimes when I have made NPCs, they are literally just a vehicle to quickly move the plot along. And I don't intend... I deliberately will frame a character as someone who I don't intend to put any time in. Just because they usually will be, like, a guard and not one who's, like, say, the captain. Or maybe one that provides a specific role. It might just be, like, a guy you meet outside the guardhouse when you're going in for a job. Mm. And I will mm. deliberately, like, rotate these people around so they don't get attached to this one person. Uh, that being said, in a series of one-shots I've done, um, the first... In the first one, the party came across these small fish people, for those who don't know, called Ekuotoa, who were like these insane gremlin fish people who've effectively created their own god. Uh, I fell in love with them as a concept when I got to fight some in Miles' campaign. Uh, and yeah, they were pretty much the antagonist of the first one shot. And in the first fight alone, a free. Uh, the same Kuotoa kept escaping every fight to live another day. Like, it went into the next fight, and then into the final fight, and then when it realised things were going bad, it ran away, appeared again in the second one shot, and at that point, the party felt quite bad for him, because, like, he was effectively this, like, the Team Rocket of the, the setting. This terrifying fish man. They've adopted him, and he actually took some levels in Badass and became, like, the... I believe it's the Kuotoa Monitor, where they're effectively, like, electric monks. Uh, and yeah, he basically has joined them as an unofficial party member. This NPC mini-fish dude. But, like, that was, again, like, with Coop and their, his party's goblin. Like, they just adopted him. But yeah, again, that's very much like a rare case, though. Again, it's mostly like, if I'm going to have a character that I want the players to encounter and probably like, I'll come up with a means of them to have to meet them. But I won't force it. It'll be a case of it's justified. Like, oh, I like this character. How will I get the party to meet him? Hmm. Uh, he can be the king's right-hand man of this foreign country that they will eventually be heading to, for example. And, you know, just various things like that. That's actually interesting, because, like, when I'm setting up my NPCs, I'll, like, unless they're an antagonist, just shotgun blast all of these little NPC seedlings into an area and just see who the party engages with and then forget about the rest. But, mm. yeah, just sort of, like, guiding them towards them is interesting. For me, it's like, well, obviously... Uh, well, it depends. It depends really on what a particular party member might want. Like, there might be a character who's looking to say, uh, make a loan. Like, they want to borrow some money, or they might want to do something involving money. And so, I might come up with this like billionaire-esque character, or I might already have something like that in the pocket, and the party's just been generous enough to like give me the in. Uh. Again, that's not really happening at the moment because I'm not really in a campaign right now. But, you know, that's oh. an example of what I would do. Oh, you're not in a campaign. Okay. okay. You know what I mean? It's like a GM, <laughs> I meant to say. Ah, um, okay. 
I do think one thing that is very important to bring up, though, of stuff like NPCs and players is, like, any tabletop campaigns pretty much ran by the morality of the protagonist. Like, the only reason why a lot of people care, even, like, not even just in TTRPGs, but in any media, the only reason why people often care about a character is because they have a name. Like, no one cares about the nameless bandit out of five in this group of 20 when... If you don't know the name, then why would you care about butchering them and gutting them like a fish? Uh, yeah, that reminds me of a couple of joke bandits that appeared recur as recurring, basically butt monkeys for my one of my campaigns was these two hapless thugs called Bob and Reg. Arkham just kept fucking terrorizing those poor fucks. Yep. Every time they sort of, they tried to rob him, he just scared the shit out of him. He nearly killed one of them at one point. They keep bumping into him. And, of course, I'm deliberately bringing them back because it's funny. And having levity in that, that they can bring a great source of levity. And with villains, because I, lo I, I love the idea of making really powerful, scary villains. And this is going to be a little bit of a segue, but... Uh, one of my favorite villains I ever did was a character called Old Molly Greenteeth, who is this hag. And she was very manipulative and very raspy in how she sounds and that sort of thing. And called everyone deary. And then I made a character in one of Coop's games who had basically the same character, but in their backstory called Old Molly Greenteeth and became... Basically the big bad at the end of your cap your campaign that just wrapped up. And it's really interesting to see how I made her this certain thing, and you made her different. They were very different characters, although they were still the same creature in in essence, at least. I think it also helps that like Coop knew who Mori Molly Greenseaf was in your setting. So we already had something to work off, I imagine. Well, it was kind of the opposite, actually. I didn't want to just have like port Miles's character over, so I wanted to go in slightly a bit of a different direction, especially because they were so central to Miles's plot. I didn't just want to have him be able to predict everything that was happening because he'd run that character before. So I sort of just took the basic concept and just went in a completely different direction, almost. They were still a hack, they were still terrible, and I still had what you written in your backstory. And I integrated them into my world and just made them the most nasty, evil, petty piece of shit I could. Even in dying, she brought the house down. Literally. Sounds like a mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she was a load-bearing boss. It was. We escaped quite easily, but still. Yeah, high-level spells. That, that is the thing, high-level spells, and we were ready. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, NPCs, like you say, should fulfill a purpose. They shouldn't, they shouldn't just be, but they don't always have to be. You can have MP and well, that's not necessarily true. You can have NPCs that are nothing, but then the party will adopt because they like the character. Or you as a DM will sometimes think, oh, this is going to be hilarious, and then bring in a recurring joke character for a few sessions, and then realize that, no, this, char this, this 
awakened bird called Cornelius T. Twitterfair is actually creepy. Well, my the curator I mentioned, I feel like the only reason the party ever got attached to him was because despite three fights in one like thing, he somehow managed to escape every single fight. <laughs> and at that point it was less that they grew attached to him and more that it was just respect that he like didn't die. Because <laughs> the party kept the, the thing is, the party kept trying to kill him. It wasn't for lack of trying. He just knew when to cut his losses. Yeah. I mean, of all things, in the campaign I'm running with you two in, you have Her Majesty, which is just a chicken. I mean, I genuinely don't care about the chicken. No, but someone in our party does. And... I mean, I'd only care if it was on my plate as food. Two people care about the chicken that I bought for setting off traps. Yeah, and now it's like the most pampered, loved chicken in the world. Never be surprised what a player will adopt. I mean, it is an actual pet. It's not an awakened chicken, thank God. Not yet. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I'm not casting awaken on that chicken. Who says you have to? <laughs> Oh, I'm God. surprised Rose hasn't, like, spent the money to do that herself. To get someone. I mean, yeah, that... I, it's not gonna happen. It's a joke. It's a joke. For now. Um, Tangent, tangents aside, though, Miles, how do you make your NPCs? Because you haven't said so yet. I kind of did, but okay. Um, I mean in more detail, like we have. Well, random tables are your best friend. Uh, online, there are literally hundreds of these generators out there for names, what the person is. It'll take it, it's literally one of the easiest things to find. And yeah, I tend to roll that, and then I kind of see what I can create from this mix. I even roll sometimes randomly for what race, if it's a D&D kind of game, what race they are. Because, like, Okay, so this guy is a is a human uh, thieves guild leader. What's special about this human thieves guild leader? Okay, not much. But then I roll again, and suddenly, oh, they're a tiefling thieves guild leader in a city where tieflings are horrifically poorly treated. That's going to completely change how they act. That's going to change how they're going to be when they meet other people. It's going to be maybe ingraining some personal prejudices in the party. Uh, I remember in one campaign for very, a very short-lived kobold PC we had entered a potion shop run by a gnome. And if you know much about at least generic lore for gnomes and kobolds, they despise each other. But the gnome is a really nice, was a really nice NPC and very helpful. And then they met the kobold and they became more strange. And you you can do a lot when just adding a little touch like this character doesn't like particular people. And yeah, I just add little details like that and and maybe I do as a, someone who does a lot of acting classes, apply a, a voice. I, I try and do act an accent is a very handy thing to do as long as you don't go full on ridiculous. Like in the case of my NPC Maldai Valdesh, who had a sort of Eastern European accent 
a generic Eastern European accent, I must admit. But if I had just done a normal voice, he wouldn't have been half as memorable as he was after all the interactions you had with him. You remember the voice, if nothing else, and what he does. Yeah, honestly, a voice can make all the difference with an NPC. I remember when I was running a Dark Heresy game ages back, um, I had a criminal underground contact the party encountered. He was running a uh, black market in an underhive. And his whole thing is that I made him sound a little Middle Eastern, and I literally described everything about him with secondhand. Those two affectations made the, instantly made him recognizable whenever I was doing his voice and like established everything the party needed to know about the guy. You know, he's sort of scummy, uh, not from around here, and he is willing to trade anything, as well as being, like, that sort of overly welcoming, overly, like, friendly type, you know? Wringing, wringing their hands in just like, ah, welcome, welcome to my store, that sort of nervous thing, of the nervous energy that, that some shopkeepers have. Well, no, they, that, that, that is a good approach, but this guy, I had him being overly comfortable and overly friendly, because partially they were introduced by a mutual contact, and partially because I wanted to show that the character felt like they were in control. They felt mm. like they owned the situation. So they were just lounging around in, like, a robe and silk pants in their second, like, secondhand robe and a secondhand silk pants on their secondhand couch in their secondhand bar and their secondhand hideout. Offering the party secondhand cigars, offering them secondhand mm. wine and secondhand mugs. Whilst also looking at the clock and checking every time the secondhand. Exactly. But there are, there, there, there are details you could throw in to just describing the character to just immediately get across what you need to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think because I've just remembered because I have the uh, book by Hira. Hirohiko Araki, the author of JoJo's, his uh, manga in theory and practice. Because I was thinking about, like, you know, because the thing is, I feel like a GM can make an NPC just as engaging as, if not more than some party members, depending. Uh, and I was just looking at the part where it's um, like a good way to write characters. And one of the things he mentions is like coming up with a potential history for the character. Like, what are the motivations, and what have like what's led them to where they are now? Like, why is this big burly orc a magic shop owner, for example? And what can you do to like, what's the word? Show, uh, how he's come about this, and like, what are his motivations for getting here? Like, maybe. This guy used to be a very famed mercenary, but then lost, like, maybe had a crippling injury, but still wants to keep fighting. So instead of, say, being a sword user, he decided to sling spells. But eventually maybe his injury, like, got too bad, and he decided to retire, but still keeping up the magical craft. Uh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's a very simple thing, and then you can be like, well, if this is a guy who maybe the party are going to see a lot of, then, like, does he have a family, for example? Well, he might. Maybe he has two daughters who are both adventurers, and then the party might meet them 
going on an adventure themselves. Uh, mm. Maybe he has a wife who does this and that and like build from that, you know, like don't if you want people to at least care about this NPC, then like don't just make them like, oh, hi, you'll only ever see me here. You'll only ever see me like for this particular purpose, you know, but okay, that's only if you want to like make them have a place, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Um. This is more to Coop because of his he's got more experience, but maybe you too as well, Terry. The idea of you know when you because you say Coop, but you put you tend to roll and just do like basically the minimum to keep the character there and then add stuff as the people get more invested in them. Have you ever come up with a character that you think this NPC is going to be the best character, everyone's gonna love them, or at least love interacting with them? And then complete apathy. Absolutely, that <laughs> happened. That's why. I, that's why I prep the way I do for my NPCs now because it's just like I. I was gonna say, kill your darlings is not just good advice for writing. It's great advice for being a DM, and I don't just mean by murdering your players or killing off your NPCs to make people feel bad. Don't get overly attached to your NPC ideas. I when I was running. When I was running one of my first cam campaigns, um, Miles, Terry, you'll know about it because I made the fucking YouTube video about it. <laughs> um, I had this Commissar character. This is a 40k character. They were... I, 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 I brewed this character. I made them. I painstakingly put them together. They were super cool. They were this stoic, devout believer in the Emperor with all this cool gear that I was going to offer to the party as help for getting through a dungeon. And I introduced this guy wading through a horde of enemies, approaching the party, trying to get them to them and focusing his soldiers to, like, cut a path open for them. And they just ran past the guy and said, kill, okay, thanks, bye. I'm just like, wait, you don't want to, you don't want to, like, ask his name or, like, his, his radio, his, his phone number? Don't you just gonna, you're just gonna run by, oh, no, uh, it's not like I drew a portrait for him and made a full character <laughs> sheet. But no, yeah, like, that's often why I produce my characters like I do. Like, for a villain, I will absolutely go all out. For a mini-boss, for anyone that I know the party are going to have to run into, I will go all out. But because of guys like that, guys in, like, some utter disaster train wreck campaigns I ran, I don't put in the effort of slavishly fleshing out a character just in case the party looks at the guy I spent five hours making a character sheet for and 15 hours making a drawing for, and then say, oh, cool, uh, we don't care about him. We're going to go talk to Grub again. I'm just I like, mean, oh, oh I think, no. I think an important part, though, of NPCs, it's like anything when you write anything. It needs to be in the right time and place. If you're having to like awkwardly shoehorn this character in that you might really like, but the party might have more important or just more interesting things to them, then of course they're gonna fall flat. I mean that doesn't always happen, but it's at least something to always try and keep in mind when coming up with a character. Yeah. Um... And also just not overwhelming the party with too many characters at once. If yeah. That is a very good point. Um, sometimes you just get NPCs that just get completely put
pushed forward by accident as well. Like in the case of the Friday Night Campaign with you guys, um, there are the Firebrands, this rival-slash-allied group of adventurers that you guys are with. And one of the main, one of the main members of that group is your character's childhood friend, who you've ruined the life at least once, and then unruined it. Uh, Speak for yourself. I was arguably the only person who never really slighted her. Look, time travel's hard. <laughs> In fact, I was also the only party member who was aware of the slights that were inflicted on her, and didn't cause them as well. I apologized and did everything I could to fix it. Oh, I'm sorry for ruining your life. It's like, sorry doesn't cut it, bro. Yeah, and then I risked then I risked my life and fixed it. It's done. It's fine. Now we now we swap spells on the weekends. But like, I mean, also, I mean, even in the original draft when I was with my sorcerer, like, I feel like she still would have had relevance. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the. Well, she is still relevant to the campaign to an extent. She is still around. But the, the the point I was trying to make was the adventure you guys went with them to fight the Fae thing, the oh, Fae yeah. invasion. And I had like this interesting barbarian character ready, the love interest for the NPC that you guys kind of met and were like, okay, cool. And uh, this bard, who was really cool, meant to be really cool and interesting, and the flood. And then there was just this little dumpy dwarf character I put in the corner now, to make up the numbers. Now, hey, that love interest, I did make an effort. You did. But you then did. it was like, where do we go from here? No, and that, also, that dwarf, like, had... He had a cool name. Not even just that, but this dwarf character that you're saying who, like, was quite meh compared to everyone else, like, considering the fact he was the only, like, true adult of the group, gave him the, a lot. The thing is, like I was going to say, Trailborn True Anvil, who was this dumpy placeholder cleric just to fill in the numbers so the party would have a decent healer, became the adopted granddad of your party. You... Basically, one adventure. No, no, no. Rose was basically about to adopt him. Well, that's because they were both blacksmiths. Yeah, it doesn't help the fact that, like, if we had another bard, maybe things would have taken off with the bard. And it didn't help. I'm not even really blaming you, but, like, the barbarian was very surly and, like, kept to herself. And there's very little he can do when it's like, we already have someone in this group that we already like. And then there's our own dynamic, and just the case of too many cooks in the kitchen. Also the fact that he actually resurrected your character Lloyd when he decided to taunt a dragon. I had a plan, it just got massively scuffed when, like... The dragon attacks you. <laughs> not even just that, but two of the hardest hitters decided to go to the other end of the field. When it was clear the dragon was going to move away, and plenty of other stuff that it's too late to really bother about now, but... Uh, I think we may have, we, like, you may have hit on a actually good piece of advice there, Miles, but even by even my mistake, a good way to get players interested in your NPCs is to make it so your NPCs and their characters have mutual interests. Part of the reason why we picked up on Trialborn and uh, Anna is because, well, 
Anna we grew up in the same town with, but Hectic fucking loves her because they're both wizards and can be nerds together. The part of the reason why Rose loves Trialborn is because they're both blacksmiths. Yeah. Like, giving characters and play NPCs, like if you want your PCs to hit up on like a NPC and you want a good draw, give them mutual interest. That's that's very true. Also, you did get a very cool dungeon out of Trialborn afterwards. Yeah, with a magical fucking anvil at the end. That was awesome. With a, with a phoenix and iron golem battles and just like an actual dungeon crawl, which was probably the first time I've done a proper dungeon crawl that actually worked. Well, that was also a, was also a really good move on your part because you were reusing an NPC that we already knew and was established for something beyond their initial purpose. Yep. yep. And thus cemented that character in your memories for a long time, hopefully. I think Coop did also actually make a fair point, which works for any character, especially villains, is that, like... And that's the thing I feel like that people forget villains in general, is that, like... Why do these... Why would you come up against this villain, really, unless you've had a reason to come into conflict? Mm. Like, yeah, sure. If your party are all, like, boy slash girl scouts or whatever... And like once you know, fight the good fight and defend uh, the innocent. That's nice, but like even then, that only gets you so far. Whereas, like, say maybe you, your group, and an antagonist are looking for the exact same thing, but only one of you can have it because you don't want the other one to have it. Yeah. Like, um, Case in point with uh, Orkin, Miles, and <laughs> his uh, various uh, hijinks that involved us with getting his weapons to be buffed, and, and the how... rival, and the rivals, and and the rival that have appeared from that actually. Yeah, and it's like both these people want the same thing, but only one can have it. Or say, like, I'm trying to think, like. Maybe another antagonist, just as hypothetical, uh, also wants to actually, like, fix, say, the corrupt politics that are in this city that the group is also trying to do so. But they have very different ways of going about it, but the end goal is still roughly the same. Like, maybe the antagonist wants to basically murder all the politicians and then replace them with his own group. Whereas the party might just want to like show them why they're what the politicians are doing in question is wrong and try and bring them over to their side. I um, they still I, want to fix the politics. It's just very different. I think one of the my favorite things about the, uh, because this is, could also be just for novel and character writing in general, but the antagonist should be active because I believe antagonist literally meant. The one who invokes change, yeah, or something. It, it literally means that. So they should be doing shit, always doing shit throughout the entire thing, it, even if it's a minor thing. Hell, you can have an antagonist secretly be the patron, or be the like. I would love the idea that you have a patron who has been really, really helpful, and then you find another patron who's been very much a nice person. You like working with them. And then you discovered that the main source of the problem is one of your patrons. 
you have to really give the characters a thing of like a situation where where would what would they do? Would they side with this guy who's clearly the villain or the new one who they don't know as well? I just would love to see that happen. I would love to have an NPC villain actually be like that. Have a villain that's you start off thinking, oh no, this guy's cool, this guy's been very helpful, giving us a few jobs, and then you realize that the jobs that you've been doing have been helping them get to where they need to do, and you need to stop it because it's your fault. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that, but it's... Uh, I may be dropping hints for future campaigns, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that actually brings me to another point that I'd like to make, um, or at least mentioned about my style. I, I said earlier that I tend to just shotgun blast out a bunch of, like, disposable NPCs and see who people players like. And that is not how I design my villains while we're on the topic of villains. Mm. When I design my villains, I will give them, depending on how important they are, between, like, a one to four page write-up. I'll stat them out, I'll figure out who they are, where they come from, their motivation, all that stuff. And then depending on the campaign... I'll build their support structures, their interwoven relationships. Uh, I remember back when I was running Dark Heresy. Dark Heresy is a very investigation-heavy game. I had this entire story arc about nobility and the their scions, their 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 younger generations getting involved with like a weapon smuggling ring with with um, aliens. And for mm. that one, I made this entire interconnected web of like who's in on it, who's peripheral to it, and that sort of thing. And the entire arc, that entire campaign, part of the campaign was based around like the party picking up leads and stuff, which I had built into the built into the situation by thinking up, okay, this is these guys' schemes. This is how they're going about their plot. This is where they fucked up. And that can be really helpful when you're plotting like out a um, like an investigative arc or a mystery based arc to build out your relationship web of everyone who's involved ahead of time because you know your player is going to interact with those NPCs because those NPCs are the point of the quest and knowing who they are, knowing their faults, knowing where they'll fuck up and where they'll succeed especially well can help you put out plot seeds and clues and hints and just completely transform what would otherwise just sort of be your players going into the room and saying, okay, there's a dead guy there, I roll investigation to being like, okay, I'm the villain now. Where did I fail my role? What pissed me off in this room that I had an emotional reaction that's going to point to me later if the players are smart enough to notice it? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah that is true having deliberate failures in that sort of way would mean, oh, we might, the party might discover things, and... Well, could... but it's not even, like, not even investigation-wise. Like, uh, I remember I was running uh, the same campaign, like, that year-long uh, level 0 to 20 campaign. I had a lesser villain who was the adopted son of the main antagonist, and he, and I knew that he had, was a chivalrous type. And that was his main weakness. Like, if the party ever called him out for a duel, doesn't matter if they use the spell or not, he'd, he'd feel compelled to respond. And that's how the party beat him. He, the, the paladin pointed him out and said, oh yeah, you're an honorable knight? Well, fuck you, fight me. And he's just like, well shit, now I gotta fight you. And I can't, cow- I can't use my 
army of hobgoblins and bugbears to my strategic advantage, I have to pull my sword and get into a one-on-one duel with you. And that and would... Was... No, for that, go ahead. I was going to say, and that would be the end of possibly an adventure, because you'd find an alternate solution where instead of fighting a through a dungeon, fucking one fight, and that's it. That could well, that be was it. A, that was the end of... That was, that was a way to, like, disable a boss at the end of a dungeon. Uh, for the big bad of that campaign, uh, one of my players worked their backstory around with me that the, his character and the original antagonist of the campaign were after the same girl in their past. And the player ended up marrying that woman, and the antagonist bitterly hated him for it. So, whatever the main antagonist of the campaign knew that this, that this player character was in a dungeon, he'd instruct his minions to go after him in particular. And in the final boss fight, he aimed almost all of his spells at that guy in particular, and the party were able to strategize around it. They'd use this druid who stole the antagonist's old flame as a fucking tank and a decoy to like sit to like uh, soak up AOE attacks and heavy spells, while the rest of the party just carved the minions. I I love how the villain was defeated because he was a simp. You could, like a great way to like add a little dimension to your villains is make them petty bastards. Yep. Like um, the dreadlord in my current campaign, or but the the now deceased dreadlord as you defeated her was Hectic's mother, your wizard's mother. You discovered through use of so much divination magic, but then there were little blocks and little plot things that were messing with you. And when you finally spoke to her, you're like, okay, we've got a mission, and then things start getting a bit weird. And then you leave, left their territory to go back to your hometown. And them being a powerful wizard, like you, like Hectic, they turned up and started wrecking the place. And as the fight was going on, she blocked off certain members of the party, had distractions. And then midway through the fight, she just peaced out. Because she just fled to look for the adopted mother of Hectic, who also lived in this town, and basically ruined part of Hectic's life. Yeah, she wanted to twist the knife. Yeah. However, she got pursued by Lloyd, Terry's character, who... Uh, well, his life was completely ruined by her as well, because she killed his family in the past, which became a revelation. And honestly, the only reason he hadn't killed himself as a kid was because he wanted revenge on her. He didn't even know until that stage in the campaign that she was the one who did it. And and then you got your revenge. So this one character who was only in it for like three sessions, basically, of the campaign, wrapped up two plot lines, gave a, a fair bit of closure and an interesting revelation that Hectic the Tiefling and Lloyd the, the Half-Elf were actually half-brothers through the father, who was killed by the Dreadlord. Uh, yeah, you got the closure, you had the epic showdown in the Burning Alchemist shop, which was actually a really good spot, whilst the party were dealing with various other devils and uh, Yugoloths in the fight, whilst the town was on fire. 
that was one of my favorite moments in the entire campaign because it wrapped up so much at once. But yeah, that was just one of my favorite things. And like, this NPC was not very long lived, but were important. They served their purpose, which, like you say, Coop, uh, the character must serve a purpose. And this one NPC served a lot of purposes. Oh, definitely. It, I think one thing I want to bring up as well is the idea of when you have your players make an M- make a backstory, it's always wonderful to have NPCs in the background or just names of people they know. Because like you say, kill your darlings. It's even worse if you're killing your friends' darlings. I, I think a good thing, though, when it comes to NPCs, if only just because when it comes to me, Characters are the most the thing I care about the most in any media. Like I don't care if the story's meh, if the characters that push the story are cool or interesting. Uh I think honestly just getting experience to write, not even just for characters, but in general, really helps with tabletop games. Because you are writing at the end of the day. Like you've not like the character doesn't just come out of nothing. You know, if they're supposed to be even just halfway important without, like, knowing how to write them, you don't just want to make this, like, NPC be your, like, like edgy OC from when you were a 15-year-old who's, like, a Mary Sue. And, and, it, and, it, and it's just super cringe because everyone can tell that this is, like, your OC. Don't steal. You know that, that that's one thing I I like doing is when you have a character as a player, I always like to give the DM at least one or two NPCs that they can work with because otherwise, what's the point? An unattached murder hobo of no fixed abode. You can go with that if you're doing a dungeon crawl, but if you're doing like a long campaign or a planned long campaign. Giving the DM these characters pre-established gives you so much more investment in the setting. Like, just to sort of twist the way around of being, like, me as a player versus me as a DM. I always aim to give DM an NPC to the DM. Like, in the case of Coop, I gave him Molly Greenteeth, who was not just memorable for my character, but for everyone involved. Because she fucked with them as much as she fucked with my character. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, character classes that, and races that will just straight up give you an NPC to play with, and <clears throat> they get ignored sometimes. Like um, Azamor have a have a literal guardian angel they come with, and I like playing around with that unless they're a fallen Azamor. Uh, warlocks, they got a patron. I don't care if like there's a whole, like, like, having the patron show up and reenact a part of the player's life is, like, it feels a little heavy-handed. I'll have that patron show up in-game. I've done it a few times. It's great. Um, yeah. Also, if they're a cleric, you could have the gods, depending on how you run gods in your setting, because as you guys know, I have used deities in my setting before, and they sometimes are it's sometimes great to have this almost untouchable character appear because the party are never going to kill them. Maybe wound them with magic, but that's a story for another time. I mean, my, I mean, 
my paladin Lloyd still wants to kill uh, Mephistopheles. Yeah, but he's not going to kill Ludok. I mean, that's because Ludok isn't a complete dick. Thank you. Like, that's the thing with my character. Even at his worst, he would still never attack good and innocent people. And I think that's the thing as well is, like, that's a clear bit of his motivation that I'd like to think is always prevalent throughout his character. And I think that, anyway, in terms of NPCs, is very important. Yeah. Like, uh, even, say, if this character does become a raving lunatic, like, do they have something that they hold above everything else? You know? That, yeah, that, like, like Coop said, he had an NPC that is yeah. chivalrous to a fault. There you go, you've given them a big old weakness. Um, but, like, one of my favorite NPCs I've ever done, which is a recurring deity, called Ludo, or Luron, as he is now known. Ludo was his original name, but he became Luron, as as I realized Ludo was just that big furry thing in fucking Labyrinth. Uh, so I didn't want to name a connotation with that. So, um, uh, yeah, Luron is my favorite deity because he's basically the Joker mixed with classical Loki. And I remember one interaction where a party met him in an, an abandoned temple of his, he just appeared in a dream vision, and this cleric who had had his leg injured by a like a knoll archer just like permanent had like a permanent injury to his leg. He asked the god Luron, Will you help me walk if I do this task for you? And he says, Sure, I'll help you walk. Whilst you I'll help you walk once this is done. And when that cleric woke up, he really he did not have a working leg anymore again. He just was given a walking stick. Just left there for him with a snake head on it waiting for him. And it was one of my favorite bits because the player wasn't even mad. When you bring up gods, I like I also like to introduce them into my games at certain points in time. Though I tend to keep their influence indirect until the players reach higher level. Or if or if they're at a like a temple. Like mm, 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 like when we met with uh, the god in your campaign, where we played grief counselors. Well, that was a that in that situation, you literally walked into her house. You were where she lived. But I'm thinking a situation earlier in that same campaign where um, uh, Starlight, uh, the party uh, the party's paladin, had a crisis of faith because she found out that her powers and her faith weren't coming from the gods she thought they were, they were coming from this group of manipulative, powerful beings living on the moon. And she went to a temple that you guys cleared out, which was a source of power for an ancient god in the setting, and got a vision from him. And got an offer to swap out her uh, her faith for faith in him instead. I had to do an audible double take then, because I was like, are you talking about Final Fantasy 4? <laughs> I didn't realize oh, did that. I actually do a Final Fantasy plot? <laughs> I mean, you did Cecil, yeah. You did the main character of Final Fantasy IV's kind of whole character arc midway through the game. He goes from a dark knight to a paladin because he has to go for an ordeal. Uh, oh, well, Starlight didn't have to go through that much of like that much of an ordeal. She just went to a mountaintop and meditated for a few days. I mean, yeah, also, that's uh, literally the ordeal that happens in Final Fantasy IV, pretty much. Well, she didn't completely change class, just 
source of power, but um Yeah, she didn't even she didn't even change Paladin Oath. She changed um the we were using the Theros Faith rules and she just changed which god she had. Uh she also didn't fight a dark version of herself. No, no, no. You already cleared the, the boss out from that dungeon. Yeah. Yeah. That was the Shadow no, it wasn't a Shadow Dragon. That was the ancient, like, draconic monk guy. Oh yeah, he was the final boss, but he was not a villain. He was... He wasn't a villain. He, he was the caretaker of that location, and you guys showed up and found him, and it's just like, oh, cool, people. Well, I'm getting ready to shuffle off this mortal coil, because I'm ancient. Uh, you want some wisdom? Yeah, let me give you some wisdom. I'm gonna teach. I'm gonna teach you something by fighting you, and then give you some meditation tests. And you've killed all the evil on this mountain, so I don't have to be here anymore. He was very memorable, and he nearly killed my bard when he was in giant ape form. When he flipped through him off the cliff, luckily for me, he was a giant ape because of polymorph. Yeah, um, that's another thing you can do. You can have dungeon bosses not be evil. Like, straight up. Just like, yeah, I'm here keeping track of the place. Oh, you want this super crazy artifact behind me? I'm supposed to guard it. I can't give it to you. You know, it has to be in the hands of the worthy. Guardians. I mean, you've, you've done this with the uh, White Lion story, White Lion storyline in your game. I was going to say, just there's just this order of knights that are in, you know, have been part of the history, and you keep finding little relics and drips and drabs of little things. And funnily enough, you only follow this quest line because you investigate ruins nearby as part of that were completely unrelated to another quest you were on. You just happen to be in the right area because the villains are trying to break into that temple. And two of the party found relics, including uh, Rose finding the Sword of the White Lion, which is his amazing magic weapon, which I won't go into details. It just it is a really cool weapon. Um, and she's been using that sword since the fourth or fifth session of this campaign, and we're like nearly 60 in. And she's used this one sword nearly throughout the entirety of the campaign, and it's going to get upgraded eventually when you finish this questline that you didn't have to do, but you got invested in. Yeah, my point being, though, every time we find one of these White Lion ruins... One of the ghosts of their order shows up. It's just like, okay, you found some other lyrics before, but I need to see if you're worthy. Fight me to one of our party members. And I think that's awesome because it's just like, yeah, we just cleared out a dungeon to get to this like reliquary, and this thing's not evil. We're not fighting to the death. It's just seeing if I'm worthy. Mm -hmm. Or in case of the True Anvil situation, the final boss of that was a phoenix and. It was the source of the power of the True Anvil that made it work to make magic items. It wasn't particularly evil, it was just a bound elemental that just was a force of nature and kind of thing. It wasn't just this evil thing that was going to corrupt the world, it was just there, ready to be, like, ready to be just put in as just the power source of this thing instead. Yeah, but, like, general point being, you're your antagonistic NPCs, your dungeon bosses and such, don't have to be bad guys. I was going to say, as a slight counterpoint with antagonists, I do feel like tabletop games are probably one of the... not. I'd say they're a medium that makes it awkward to have not morally ambiguous 
enemies, but more like, oh, I was secretly good all along. Just because the perspective is 99% always on the player. And unless you, I feel like, take great pains to really make it so that it doesn't feel contrived, I feel like it's very hard to not just immediately cut through the conflict and just be like, why are we fighting then? I don't know. That's just my take. And um, Mike, I'm going to make one more final point uh, about uh, villains is... Um... They don't have to be powerful. Like, people always say the villain of a, of a thing, like a story or an adventure, has to be the big, muscly, unstoppable killing machine. No, they can just be conniving and clever and manipulative. I mean, I would love... I mean, I've done it a couple of times where... There was a villain, again, called the Dreadlord, because I like to reuse ideas and, jo and sort of as a uh, reference. There's a villain called the Dreadlord who you think, oh, he's going to be a super powerful villain and not particularly strong. He's just an average enemy that got beaten down. And what um, I would like is like, you could have like a, a noble, a tiny, insignificant noble like in terms of power and prowess, but they are the biggest threat because they have money, they have resources, and they are sending everything after you because you fucking pissed them off. And they're not going to get their hands directly bloody, but they're going to send things that are so dangerous that they have to basically give up most of their money to fund it. Like, this noble somehow maybe got a fucking beholder on their side by bribing them to the nth degree, you kill the beholder, and then this NPC noble is standing behind. And then they've just overextended. Just the idea of just having this villain. I I like the idea that there can be a villain that is much weaker than what they send at you. Well, there's it's interesting you bring that up because there's more than one kind of power. You know, there's there's like physical power, magical power, in in D and D, of course. But then there is also the power of influence and money. Yeah. In your game, you've 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 used this before. Um, uh, uh, Mike's character Flint, his main antagonist was just some nobleman. He had no. He, if we wanted to kill his ass, probably would have done him in in one hit. Literally. <laughs> but he was tied into this cult enslaving operation and held extreme political and influential power over this country. And if we wanted to come at him directly, we probably couldn't have. I mean, there is the RuneSmith video of, like, what's more deadly, a noble or a Tarrasque? And it's like, yeah, a Tarrasque can destroy a town or even a city and, like, leave piles and piles of bodies in their wake. But a noble can actually ruin a life. And if they're clever, can never be touched. I mean, yeah, especially if in the case of that NPC, if you'd just killed him, you'd have basically made yourselves public enemy number one in an entire country. It was almost like a linchpin. If you took him out that way, you basically make the whole thing collapse on top of you, which is not a good idea. Yeah, so instead we had to attack his power base. Uh-huh. And you got him. Uh, 
like Flint actually had a fairly happy ending in that resolve. And then I put the final nail in the coffee by buying <laughs> buying his house out, taking his daughter in as a employee, and turning it into an orphan his house into an orphanage. That's more that was more you teabagging the villain while he was down. That was the point. It's like I'm going to completely ruin the legacy that he's ruined for himself, but you know, I'm just gonna be like ha. Just have the last laugh. But that's another thing is like just how does the players work with these NPCs as well? I yeah. think we kind of are wrapping up. Uh, really, we don't have unless anyone's got any other points they'd like to make before we wrap up. Uh, just just one. Uh, earlier I said that I make NPCs with a purpose. That purpose can be anything. Um, it could be like the villain, an ally, a potion seller, literally anything. Sometimes the purpose can be just as small as showing what the people in a town are like, you know? Indeed. Like an NPC standing in just to be like, yeah, I'm Guy from Town Place. I am typical resident of this village. Or even like, I am person reacting to the, to, to the deeds of the party. I am Joe Everyman. And it can be that simple of a person. Uh, it's just up to your party and up to you if you want to Use them afterwards, once you've established them. Fair enough. And uh, you, Terry, any uh, final comments you'd like to make before we wrap up? Uh, the only thing I'd say, uh, when it comes to voices, don't make too big of a deal out of it. Like, Fair. if everyone's having fun, regardless of how you sound, who cares? Like, don't overextend yourself by trying to do voices, and then it's like you're flubbing your lines that you've come up with in advance. Work, work within, so work within your limitations. Yeah, like, if you only have one voice, fine. But if you can make that voice good, if you can convey that emotion, that carries a lot more weight. Uh, to that point also, don't do a voice that hurts your throat or, or like, your, like, like, your ability to talk, if you think this NPC is going to have to talk a lot, just don't. We, I think we've all been there where we've made, made a mistake in a character's voice, and then it's just like, oh god, they're talking to him again. Save yourself the suffering. Indeed. And that is one thing that everyone must realize when you are GM or DM of any RPG, most of it will be suffering. And yeah, that wraps up our, our latest episode of the Critical Fail podcast. We hope you enjoyed this and give us a like, maybe follow us on Twitter. And yeah, we'll see you next time.